Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. In particular, you're tuned into our OITE slash our board review series. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are going over this OITE slash our board review series. Hope that this has been helping for all of you all that have been listening. You all have listened and supported for a good amount of time, and uh, we hope you're getting some value from this. Uh, so without further ado, we'll continue on and talk about some more joints. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Very true. And so continuing forth, uh, I think this is very good just to know for arthroplasty. And then this, once you get this down with this next question, these next couple of questions down, you can kind of start to build on your knowledge um, for, for when you look at total knee arthroplasties, but what is the anatomical axis of the femur? Yeah, I, I kind of talked about it a little bit with that abductor moment. Um, and just to kind of revisit that, cause I know it's confusing. The adductor moment is how far the center point of the knee is from the mechanical axis of the limb. And so when we talk about the mechanical axis of the femur itself, Mm -hmm. Um, we draw a line from the center of the femoral head to the center of the distal femur that differs from the anatomic axis, uh, because the anatomic axis, um, or you probably asked about the anatomic axis and I just started talking about the mechanical <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> um, uh, because the mechanical axis is honestly, it's the more important thing, but the uh, anatomic axis goes down the shaft of the femur. And so um, they are typically going to be about six degrees of valgus from one another. Um, so again, mechanical axis is central femoral head to center of uh, femoral condyles. And anatomic axis is center of medullary canal down to the uh, distal femur. So it basically, as you put a, you, you put an intramedullary nail in for a femur fracture down the anatomic axis, uh, is the best way to kind of think about what the anatomic axis is for the femur. Um, and so what do these lines have to do with a total knee arthroplasty? Like, why are they important? Yeah. And because just like you just said, uh, when you're talking about when you're putting a nail down a femur, that's the anatomical axis, for many systems, uh, when you're doing a total knee arthroplasty, you use an instrumentary guide to guide your femoral cuts on the distal aspect of the femur. So the anatomical axis is the starting point of your instrumentary guide. Um, but when you look at your mechanical axis, like you just mentioned, um, the line down the femoral, the center of the femoral head to the center of the distal femur, 
your distal femur cut is going to be perpendicular to this axis. And you just mentioned that the difference between these is around six degrees, give or take. Um, so when you are and every system is different, but when you actually look at your jig, when you're getting ready to make your cuts, you set it to six degrees um, in order to account for the difference between the anatomical axis and the mechanical axis. That way you make your cut perpendicular to the distal femur. And I'm trying to, I try to put these questions so we could just like break it down as simply as possible, but it, you know, looking at a picture will make a lot more sense, um, these different axes. And this is one of the things uh, that at least I felt was, was pretty good to, to talk about because I remember I really didn't know much about this when I was starting off, but there are different limb alignment principles that are seen in total knee arthroplasty. So, so what are they? And I guess, you know, kind of why, why is it important? Like what's the difference between these different principles? Yeah, the kind of main two uh, that are talked about is mechanical alignment versus kinematic alignment. And mechanical alignment is probably the most widely accepted and most widely used. And that is where you use the jigs that you are talking about, the intramedullary uh, femur and tibia guides. Uh, to essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to restore a neutral mechanical axis of the limb, meaning the center of the femur passes through the center of the knee, passes through the center of the tibial plafond. Um, and by doing that, you are restoring the true mechanical alignment of the limb and you will have a balanced knee. The contrarian or kinematic alignment recreates the coronal and sagittal alignment of the joint line, but you're technically keeping the same limb alignment pre-op and post-op. So if they have a varus knee pre-op, they're going to have a varus knee post-op, which um, some obviously will, will argue that if they are within kind of generally accepted varus and valgus, doing a total knee with a kinematic alignment is going to uh, be just fine. Um, I have not done any kinematic alignment knees, and I know that there's a lot of uh, considerations for how to make the cuts uh, associated with it that makes it a little bit more of a complex knee until you're comfortable with doing those sort of cuts and making the calculations and, and the resections and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but if the knee is widely in varus or widely in valgus, then you're not going to keep them in those um, excessively deformed positions. You're going to at least try to correct them somewhat back to neutral. Um, there's anatomic alignment as well, where uh, the proximal tibia is uh, usually in a little bit more varus in these people. So the tibia is cut with a little bit more varus and the femur is cut with a little bit more valgus in order to kind of maintain a better anatomic alignment of the limb. But again, mechanical alignment versus kinematic alignment are the kind of two reigning kings. And to my knowledge, it hasn't been hashed out in the data if mechanical versus kinematic alignment provides superior long-term outcomes. So it's not likely going to be tested on. Um, but because kinematic alignment is not that routinely done, it's, it's a very, it, it is a quite specialized procedure. 
a lot of the stuff that we're going to kind of talk about from now on is restoring the mechanical alignment or the mechanical alignment total knee arthroplasties. And so um, what is alignment? Uh, and I, I kind of talked about this, but we like going over things over and over again. What what are you aiming <laughs> for when you restore mechanical alignment? Yeah, just to, just to have it a point home, you want the line from the center of the hip to the center of the ankle uh, to also grow through the center of the knee. So you want it all to be one straight line at the end of the day when we're talking about, again, mechanical alignment and for their lack of better terms, that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this podcast. Um, and what that does when you have that line that is, again, from the center of the hip to the center of the ankle that also grows to the center of the knee after you do your total knee arthroplasty is thought to lead to even distributions, uh, do distribution load across the prosthesis. So less, less, uh, less wear those, that's kind of the thought process behind it. And we mentioned this earlier. I, I probably should put this question a little earlier, but why not say it again? Um, but what, what is the angle between the anatomic and mechanical axis typically? And then why is this even important? Why do we care about this stuff? Yes, typically five to seven degrees is the difference between the anatomic and mechanical axis, and it's seven, five to seven degrees of valgus, and um, that's why you're doing a more valgus cut for the distal femur, because you're basing the intramedullary guide off the anatomic axis, and if you cut perpendicular to the anatomic axis, then you cut the femur in six degrees of varus, and so it's not like you're cutting the femur necessarily into valgus, you're cutting it so that it is uh, parallel to the floor. So you have yep. to correct for that anatomic versus mechanical axis uh, differentiation. Um, and then do taller or shorter people have a more valgus uh, femur? Yeah, shorter people have a more valgus femur. Um, and taller people tend to have less valgus, like you have more one of our attendings used to uh, explains it pretty good. And I wish I had the thought to say exactly what he says. Uh, but for the taller people, they have like more, more area to get to that axis of the knee. Um, but anyways, but so for shorter people, they have more valgus, taller people have less valgus. So the valgus cut is less uh, in taller people typically, and typically more in shorter. So that's where that five to seven degrees uh, everybody's a little bit different. That's why I don't think we mentioned it earlier, but getting standing alignment films, a lot of uh, arthroplasty surgeons, or at least I know some of them here, uh, will will get standing alignment films to get a look at the mechanical axis of the lower extremity. Um, so we talked about the femur. You talked about the mechanical and the anatomic axis of that. What about the tibia? What's the anatomic and mechanical axis of that? So the, the tibia... Um... I, the good part about it is they are generally considered to be the same, where the anatomic axis, again, is the longitudinal axis through the medullary canal, similar to placing a tibial nail. And then the mechanical axis of the tibia is aligned from the center of the proximal tibia, so the kind of intercondylar notch down to the center of the tibial plafond. And those are usually about the same. They might be about one to two degrees in varus uh, for the proximal. And that's where you see that proximal tibia in a slight degree of varus compared to the true anatomic uh, axis. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? 
then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to ROCK content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. And um, just like I said, the angle between them is, is zero. So uh, why is the mechanical axis of the tibia important in regards to the cut? Well, you know, again, this is again, reiterating what we talked about a little about uh, what we talked about earlier, but the proximal tibia is going to be cut perpendicular to the mechanical axis. So this also will lead to an even low distribution across the prosthesis. So that's, again, the whole thing with mechanical alignment. Now, you did mention that these lines are typically almost always normal for or almost always the same for the tibia, the mechanical and the anatomical axis. But what are some situations where the mechanical and the anatomic, anatomic axis of the tibia may not be the same? So you may have to make an angled uh, proximal cut or it may not just be as simple as you think it's going to be. Yeah, those ones who had an old tibia shaft fracture that was treated non-operatively with an angular deformity. And typically um, where you're unfortunately going to, well, hopefully you don't recognize this in the OR, but um, for those who do not get entire limb length x-rays prior to arthroplasty, oh. um, and they just get knee x-rays, if you don't do a good physical exam of the entire limb, you might be surprised by a uh, distal tibia fracture that's in about 10 degrees of varus or 10 degrees of valgus. And uh, that can throw off your, both your intramedullary and your extramedullary guides. Um, typically, if they have a deformity of the tibia shaft, using an extramedullary guide is more beneficial because the intramedullary guide won't be able to pass uh, through the deformity and you'll make a cut based on uh, uh, the deformed portion. And so if you know that there's a tibial deformity, but it's not that bad to the point where it would benefit from an osteotomy, uh, like a corrective osteotomy, and then doing the, the total knee after their limb length or their limb deformity is corrected, um, using an extra medullary guide will benefit you because you essentially bypass the deformity and you're just looking at where the cut is in relation to the tibial plafond and the uh, tibial plateau. You don't care about what's in between. Yeah. And so um, basically when you are doing these uh, femur and tibial cuts, how much bone is usually resected? Yeah. So really you just want to sec, you don't want to resect a lot of bone, but you just want to resect enough bone for the femoral and the tibial components to be placed along with the thinnest polyethylene insert possible. Not thinnest polyethylene polyethylene insert possible, just but along with a thin poly. And so what this ends up being is it's typically around eight to ten millimeters off the highest part of the femur or the tibia. And ideally, um, your bone and your cartilage cut is the same thickness as the thickness of the implant 
which varies from, you know, from company to company. So the one thickness of one may be eight, the other may be 10. So again, each company is a little bit different. But um, what this does is if you make that cut and it's the same thickness of the bone and the cartilage put together, that should help with maintaining the joint line as well as the tension on the ligaments, on the medial and the lateral ligaments. Um, so that those are for resecting our femur and our tibia cuts. What's the maximum um, alteration of the joint line that's typically allowed? That is typically allowed. Yeah, and the joint line is going to be determined by your femoral cut, um, and it really is about eight millimeters is what can be tolerated uh, by an alteration of the joint line. So. If you make, if your distal femur cut is uh, really far or really thick and you raise that joint line, then you're going to have too much patella baja and you're going to have patellar impingement and patellar clunk and all of that sort of stuff that you don't want to have to worry about down the road. So um, I don't think they'll necessarily test you on an actual millimeter. number, but just know for in the OR and on rounds or whatever, that eight millimeters is about the maximum alteration of the joint line that is typically allowed and tolerated by patients. And so um, uh, it's a a question that should be kind of known throughout all orthopedic (laughs) residency, but um, you're routinely asked about balancing a knee. Is it necessary to balance a knee uh, when you're doing an arthroplasty? (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. Um, You know, uh, it's also important, you know, when we talk about ligamentous balancing, it's important that you balance in the, in the coronal plane. So you talk about their medial and their lateral ligaments, but also in the coronal, in the coronal plane. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. But when we talk about our gaps, the whole gap balancing, so our flexion as well as our extension gaps. And typically our goal or our goal for every total knee arthroplasty is to have equal tension in flexion and extension as well as in the medial and the lateral compartments. That's what you want. You just want a well-aligned, balanced knee. Um, now, how is this typically done in the in the coronal plane or this kind of varus valgus plane? Yeah, so um, the coronal plane is usually the collaterals that you're dealing with. Uh, you might alter the coronal plane a little bit with your bony cuts in terms of how much varus or valgus you're cutting into the tibia and the femur. But usually when people are talking about coronal plane balancing, it is uh, talking about the ligaments. And, um, usually, uh, it's a result of a, uh, either medial or lateral, uh, joint that is too tight. Um, and so what you can do is by releasing some of those ligaments on the medial or lateral side, or partially releasing those. And there's a certain kind of uh, release that you will follow from start to finish that we'll cover in a bit that uh, kind of helps guide so that you don't just go straight to releasing an important structure versus doing something that's not going to change anything. Um, but just know that um, if you're going to release the tight side and fill the loose side, and by filling the loose side, that means either a metallic augment on that side to change the kind of bony cut that you made. Uh, or it's going to be doing a thicker poly 
so that the loose side is no longer loose and then doing a ligamentous release on the tight side because the side that's tight is becomes more tight because of a thicker poly. And so what are some of the releases that are performed sequentially in a varus type knee? Yeah, so one of the first things you want to do is you want to remove the, the bony osteophytes. We know with osteoarthritis, osteophyte formation is one of the uh, radiographic findings. So you want to release the bony osteophytes. You also do a subperiosteal release of the deep MCL. Um, Technique-wise, maybe a little different in what part of the case, but typically some people release this with a bovi or a periosteal elevator or something of that sort. Um, then next, you are once you've released a deep MCL and it's still really tight and go to the posterior medial corner, which you'll be kind of looking at the uh, capsule as well as the semimembranosis. And then finally, and lastly, you're, you're releasing the superficial MCL or doing an epicondylar osteotomy, uh, neither of which I've seen. And I don't, I don't think I've been in a case where we've had to release the semimembranosis either. Um, but also one thing that you can do is you can, you can downsize the component and move it a little bit laterally. Um, that way there isn't as much uh, structures on the medial side. So it's not as tense. It's not as tight. And that's how downsizing and moving the component laterally could help. Um, what portion of the, and, and you tell, have you ever, have you had to, have you had to release a superficial MCL? Um, just curious. I, I haven't seen it, but is it something that you find that you've had to do? No, it's if you're if you're releasing that far for a, like a superficial MCL or an epicondylar osteotomy, I would be very cautious of rechecking your bony cuts because yeah. um, if you're trying to just stuff a poly in there and trying to make it work and you're doing all sorts of ligamentous releases and all of that, it's probably more beneficial to you to redo your tibial uh, cut. <clears throat> and it may be one of those things where you uh, do the tibial cut a little bit more in varus so that you do cut more of the medial side and you create more space uh, for that because the superficial MCL is kind of that last structure that's providing uh, stability on the medial side. And so if you're yeah. having to release that or do an epicondylar osteotomy and then fixation of it, um, I I would feel more comfortable to just do a little bit different bony cut rather than going that far. But again, yeah. uh, it sometimes it has to happen. And if you have no other options, then it still has to be in your kind of repertoire of uh, things to do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and so, and so yeah, I guess for, for, uh, for, theoretical or for mental stimulation <laughs> what what portion of the superficial mcl can you release if you're tight in flexion yep the if you are tight in flexion if you think about it um as you bend your knee the anterior structures are going to be more tight so if you release the anterior half of the mcl you will release a tight mcl inflection um if you are too tight when it comes to extension all of the posterior structures of the knee are tight in extension. So you can do a selective posterior or posterior oblique 
portion release if you are tight in extension. Uh, similar to like the elbow for the uh, MCL of the elbow or the ulnar collateral ligament, the anterior band is taut in extension and uh, the uh, posterior band is tight in flexion. We hope that you all enjoy listening to this episode and that you will hit the subscribe button and that you will tell just one colleague about our podcast. That would help out so much. Imagine if just one person, everybody that listened to this episode, just told one other person. That'd be so great. All right. Until next time.